Don't you praise the Lord this morning for Emmanuel, meaning God with us. What a remarkable truth sung to us. Back to Luke chapter 2 this morning, the passage that we read together just a few moments ago. Before our service is over, we'll be singing Angels We Have Heard on High. And why would we sing such a song? Well, it's because of what we have right here in Luke chapter 2. Let's go back and look again at verses 8 through 13 of Luke chapter 2 to get the setting for this message that's entitled Good Tidings of Great Joy. Verse 8, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Shall we pause together to pray? We worship you today, our Lord, as the most high God. Our God was able in Bethlehem's stable to bring forth Emmanuel. Lord, we praise you and thank you for your matchless ways, your prophecies, your promises. Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, that is so comforting to us today to know that God is with us in all of our difficulties, in all of our hardships. And even today, as we sing these joyous Christmas songs, we sing because indeed he's Emmanuel and God is with us. Now, dear Heavenly Father, in these moments together, we ask that you would be pleased and praised and honored that what would be spoken here would be your words Lord, would you fill me with your spirit? Would you fill every willing hearer here with the spirit of the living God, of the holy God, so that on this day, as we think upon you, that we might remember the greatness, the preciousness, the glory, the mercies of our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are on this Christmas day, and Merry Christmas to all of you, and those of you now who are watching us on the live stream as well, we're glad that you could join us and be a part of this. What is it that makes Christmas so meaningful? What is it that, that fills us with joy? We find it here in this passage. We find in this passage that on this very first Christmas, the angels described their news as 
good tidings or good news of great joy, catch this, which shall be to all people. Aren't you glad that you are a people this morning? You and I are part of the all people spoken of in this passage. When you think then about the meaning and the joy of Christmas, this is where it begins. The angels are introducing something. They are introducing the fulfillment of a promise that had been made long ago all through the Old Testament and especially to Abraham. Abraham was promised, in your seed shall all nations be blessed. How did the Lord intend to fulfill that? How, how would he bring about blessings to all of the nations? And Abraham was told it would be through one of his descendants. And so today as we talk about this, let's ask the question, how does this work? How is it that the Lord has actually brought about his, his glory? And by the word, the word glory, we mean his uniqueness, his unique excellence. How did he actually bring that about in fulfillment of what he had promised to Abraham and to others? Go back, if you would, to verses 1 through 3 there of Luke chapter 2, and notice how it came to pass. This is one of Dr. Luke's favorite expressions, and it came to pass. He's introducing a story to us when he says, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius, uh, some pronounce that as Quirinius, was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. This is a reference to the Roman emperor whose name was Octavius. Octavius was brought into power as really a nephew of Julius Caesar, who was adopted right before Julius Caesar died as his successor. But because there was division inside the Roman Empire, they formed what is commonly known as the triumvirate. That is a three-way sharing of power. Along with Mark Antony and another man, they together ruled the Roman Empire. But Octavius was a very shrewd politician. He was also a very good military leader. And so little by little, he began to cause his power to grow. Ultimately, he ended up in a battle with Mark Antony, and you know the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra of Egypt. Ultimately, it came down to warfare, and he was able, with his Roman forces, to defeat them at the Battle of Actium. Many people point back to that. A lot of scholars point back to that event is when the Senate got together and said, we need to proclaim him as the emperor. Others would go forward about three years and say it's when the Roman Senate, which was really a Republican form of government, they got together and said, we want to confer on this Octavius. Not only that he is Caesar, that is that he is emperor, but also that he is Augustus. And by that word, they meant a noble one or a venerated one. His power grew. He actually grew his power, the Roman Empire, all the way down into North Africa. This much is crystal clear. By the time he reached his deathbed, this man had dominated 
all the way from Britain all the way down to India. You can still read some of the books today. You can read about what happened with Julius Caesar and the other Caesars, about how it goes all the way up into Britain, all the way down into India. And he had broadened his empire in that way, so much so that by the time he died, the Roman Senate said after he died, we declare him to be a god. They declared Caesar Augustus, Octavius, to be a god. That is, he was to be worshipped henceforth in all the places where Romans would gather together. This was that he ought to be worshipped. Well, you and I know the real story this morning. We know from the book of Daniel that the most high God rules in the kingdoms of men, and he places over it whoever he chooses, that ultimately Caesar, Augustus, Octavius, in in all his greatness, was just a servant of the Most High God. And that's one of the great encouragements this morning, that when you stop to think about how did the Lord actually bring this all about, here's what we could say this morning. We could say, for his own glory, God works through human government. Isn't that comforting to know in our own country right now? Recently, our House and Senate and our president passed up 170. I mean, this is it's just amazing that $1.7 trillion bill called the Omnibus Bill. Some are calling it the Ominous Bill. And they, they put that forward to increase our debt. And, and here's the situation. In our own country right now, $31 trillion of debt, and that's on the books. Uh, there are, believe, we believe, many liabilities that are off the books. $31 trillion in debt. Okay, this morning you and I wrestle with that and say, what on earth is going on with our government? Undoubtedly the people in Rome raised the very same question. What's really going on? And here's what we can grasp from this this morning. That for his own glory, God works through human government. And why is he doing this? He is fulfilling his prophecies. He is making good on his promises for his own glory. God is at work even today in human government and in being in charge and in control of all these things. He's actually bringing about everything that he promised to us. All that he promised to the the saints of God throughout the scriptures, he actually is still bringing that forth. And just as surely as those in the Old Testament longed for the becoming of the Messiah, you and I are longing for the second coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ the Savior. One of the things that Caesar Augustus did was he broadened in this empire. He created through census taking and taxing that went with it. He created this broad network of the Roman roads. Now he did so in order to maintain his control, what they called in Latin the Pax Romana, meaning the Roman peace, the the military peace. In other words, if you don't behave, the soldiers come in, kill you, and then that, that problem goes away. And so in order to maintain his control over this empire, that's what he did. He had all these roads set up. By the way, they just discovered another Roman road in Galilee the other day. 
We're studying a lot on Thursday nights about new discoveries. They just found another Roman road that they didn't know it was there. It had been covered over over the years. And so there's a lot of excitement about it. Later on, Hadrian, this would be about 150, 200 years, if I'm remembering correctly, after Octavius, he actually dominated. He wanted to move in and just dominate Israel. And one of the things he used to do that was those Roman roads. They would be like our interstate highways of today. Yet here's the great grace of God, that even where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And by that, we would point out that the Great Commission allowed the apostles of Jesus Christ and others to go on those Roman roads and to go all over the empire proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what Galatians 4 is speaking of when it talks about the the fact that the Lord came in the fullness of time. That's what we can rejoice in today. That's how we can see the glories of what is here. You may remember, how many of you remember the story of the emperor's new clothes, the Hans Christian Andersen story about the emperor's new clothes? And you know that all the stylish adults had agreed in their smugness to see the emperor's invisible clothes, which were really not there. And what it took was a small child to tell the truth, to say, in fact, the king is naked. And then all of the adults were humbled when they said, well, came right out of the mouth of babes, out of the mouth of a small child. You see, in a world where here is the Roman Caesar, Caesar Augustus, Octavius, and in, in all his greatness, what it took was the Christ child to come to this earth to point out to humanity that humanity is actually naked. That is, it does not have any righteousness. In the words of Isaiah 64, all of our righteousness is like, it's like filthy rags. It, it took the Christ child to come and to point this out to us in order that, as the apostles would go on to explain, that we can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But it's only in recognizing that we do not have any uh, clothing of righteousness in ourselves It's only because we come to that realization and then come to the realization of who Christ really is, God with us, that there is any real hope today. I noticed in a cartoon, did you see this the other day, that here is a little boy, he's sitting on Santa's lap. And he's sitting on Santa's lap, and the first thing he says to Santa is, I self-identify as nice. I thought, What a way for people who are talking about self-identifying, and here I self-identify with these pronouns, a little boy says, I just want you to know, I self-identify as nice. Who among us would not agree with that? Who who among us would not not say, well, you know, I I think I I self-identify as nice, and yet there, my friend, is what we have to go to the scripture with. And we have to look for our blind spots and we have to humble ourselves and say, Lord, what am I really like? Notice, if you will, pressing on there in verses four through seven, it says, and Joseph, because of this census taking, because of this taxation, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem 
because he was of the house and lineage of David. That means that he's really part of the royal lineage of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, who was great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son. And implication here, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, what can we learn from this? We're we're asking the question today, how did God bring about his great glory? That is, how did he bring about this fulfillment of his prophecies and make good on his promises that he had given to people like Abraham, who promised, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. How did he do it? And our first answer was, he did it through human government. Though the Roman government was far more corrupt than our own government today, still God was at work and he fulfilled his will He accomplished his purposes. He did exactly what he said that he would do. Well, what's he doing here in verses 4 through 7? He's bringing it about through humble people and humble circumstances. For his own glory, God works through humble people and humble circumstances, again, to fulfill his prophecies and promises to his people. It says that Joseph and Mary came out of Nazareth. Do you remember later on what Andrew asked? And Andrew asked when told about Jesus of Nazareth, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You see, Nazareth was a rough town with rougher people. They were known specifically as stonemasons. The word that's used for carpenter in our scriptures actually is not merely just working with wood. It's a craftsman in in several areas. And so what we believe was actually happening there, they were very skillful with wood, but also very skillful, skillful as stonemasons. Nazareth is not for, far from the great Roman city. This would be to the north and a little bit to the west, if I'm remembering correctly. It's called Sepphoris. Sepphoris was the great Roman city there. And there were so many buildings that had to be built that we suspect that Joseph and Jesus and James and Jude as they were training under Joseph, actually built in that very area. They were very good as stonemasons. And so they had a really rough reputation. If you just kind of think about the people in society today, you say, well, I don't want to go into that area, or I don't want to go into that town, because they kind of have a rough reputation. That's exactly what you see here in Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Isn't it interesting that Jesus chose the lowest and and most base places, the the roughest places with rougher people, that's whom he chose to be among. God placed him there among those people. Now, it says that Mary was great with child, and here they have about a 100-mile journey to make. Ladies, I'd just like to ask you this morning, if you were great with child, can you imagine walking from here down to Troy, Ohio, uh, even in good weather. Can you imagine walking down to Troy, Ohio, riding a donkey perhaps? Can you imagine riding a donkey all the way down to Troy, Ohio? That's basically what Mary and Joseph went through as they went and, and took their place there as the Lord had looked upon them. 
when, when you think then about the way that the Lord is using what we would probably call today peasants, when he used these humble people, people who were not thought of as, they, weren't, they certainly weren't thought of as wealthy. They weren't thought of as, as winners in the sense that society talks about. They, they were not part of the you know, upper crust of society. No, these were, these were just humble peasants. But the beauty of it is they just obeyed the Lord. That, that when the Lord showed them what it is that he wanted them to do, both, both Mary and Joseph, you remember, he was very troubled by all the circumstances under which Christ was born, Christ was conceived. Still, he works, the Lord works through humble, obedient people. It may be today that you're not involved in human government. It, it may be that nobody knows your name, nobody knows my name, but here's the comfort this morning that God works through humble, even peasant-like people who obey him. And that's the way he brings about the fulfillment of his prophecies. Stop to think about what I'm saying here this morning. That here's Joseph and Mary, and they're submitting themselves to the Lord. And that's exactly the way the Lord worked to bring about his first coming. What is the Lord doing today in us? You say, well, I'm, I'm like a nobody. I mean, I, I, there, I, there, I, there's nothing special about me, folks. That's exactly the kind of people he worked through the first time to bring forth his son. How is it that the Lord is at work even in us now as we obey the revelation that God has given us, the scripture that God has given us? How is he at work right now? to bring about his second coming in ways that we won't even understand until after he comes. We may not even understand it in heaven, but in heaven we could look back and say, I'm so, I'm, I'm glorifying the God, God that he uses humble, peasant-like people. That's exactly what he was doing here. The Lord not only used humble people, he used humble circumstances. Who would place their baby in an animal food trough? Now, those of you who've been over to Israel know sort of the, the secret behind this and our westernized way of looking at it. We always look at it as a, like a wooden manger. They wouldn't have done that over there. They, it would have been a limestone manger or a, or a rock manger that they had carved out. They didn't want it to rot across the generations. They wanted it to be able to go on from generation to generation. And, and here is the son of the highest that we talked about in our scripture memory a few moments ago. The son of the highest. And where is he placed? He's placed in the lowest of places. He's placed in an animal food trough. What is the Lord demonstrating to all of us there? Well, this actually comes out in Philippians. When the Lord says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to tell us how he humbled himself. In the form of God, he did not think it was robbery, not something to be grasped after to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. He took upon him the form of a servant to be made in the likeness of men. And that's why exactly why the Lord tells us that he suffered, even suffered unto death. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him. Today, if you are humbled, today, if you've been brought into circumstances that have humbled you, you're at the end of yourself. 
Why not submit yourself to the Lord, obey exactly what the Lord says to do in his word, and in so doing, know that the Lord will, he will exalt you. He tells us even in scripture, James and Peter talked about this. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of God. And in due time, what the Lord is going to do is he's going to bring forth his greatest and highest glory. The Lord worked through humble circumstances. He worked through humble people. He even worked through humble people like shepherds. Now, the shepherds of the time, they were thought of as robbers. And this was especially by the farmers. The farmer said, those shepherds are causing their sheep to eat my crops. And so there was tremendous contention, range warfare, we would call it in our western United States. It was range warfare going, would you, would you keep those sheep out of my crops? I don't want them anywhere near my, my stuff. Noblemen and farmers looked down upon shepherds. And to whom did the Lord send his angels? He sent them to humble shepherds out abiding in the field by night. Can you just imagine what happened to them when that angel came upon them and began to make the announcement? I mean, they'd never seen anything like that before, I guarantee you. And it's a, it's a revelation from God himself that they are receiving. And by the time it's all over... There's a whole multitude, you know, what does this mean? Hundreds, thousands of angels. And what are they all proclaiming? Glory to God in the highest. As we read here a few moments ago about these shepherds, these shepherds were the Lord's first ambassadors. Uh, Wait, wait. If today you were in Washington, D.C., and you were looking for someone to place as an ambassador to go to another nation... I mean, wouldn't you choose, as I said a minute ago, the, the highest, you know, upper crust people? I mean, the, the greatest people in the area. Whom did the Lord choose? He chose humble shepherds. Dear friend, if the Lord could use humble shepherds, he could use us. He could use us just to humbly obey him, receiving his revelation. Now we have the very word of God, having this revelation in our own hands to be able to convey the great glory of our God to others. This is really a remarkable story. How is it that the high and most holy one is the meek and most lowly one? That's the way that Jesus described himself in Matthew chapter 11. He said, I am meek and lowly in heart. How does this work? That the high and holy one would be the meek and lowly one. This is part of the unique excellence, the glory of our great God. So when you think about the way the Lord worked there to bring forth, as he says, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Okay, now you go back and think about what was that blessing that was promised to Abraham? In you, in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. What's the nature of this blessing? A Savior which is Christ the Lord. Can you just for a moment imagine what it was like to be one of those shepherds who had just been trained and gone into the synagogue on Sabbath after Sabbath and had heard about the promise of the coming one, the promise of Emmanuel in Isaiah, the promise of the Messiah. And the word Messiah in the language of the Greeks was Christos. We say today the Christ. 
Can you just imagine what happened in their hearts when they heard the angels say, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is, what's the next word? Christ the Lord. He's here. The Messiah has come. The Messiah has been born. The one whom Israel had longed for all those years, he was born. And the Lord brought forth his great glory, as the angel said in Luke 2.13, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. How, how could there be goodwill toward men? How could there be God's goodwill toward rebellious, sinful people who were naked of any righteousness, how could there be goodwill toward men? It is all by the glory of the highest, the glory of the Lord in sending a Savior. Out in the fields in the darkness of evening, shepherds abiding with sheep of their fold suddenly heard the Lord's angel announcing wonderful news from the promise of old, Glory to God in the highest of heavens, peace and goodwill through the grace that he gives. This is good news sent for all of the nations. God sent his son so that each man could live. Angels were shouting this glorious story. Fear not, they bring us good tidings of joy. Born in the city of David, a savior. Come to the manger, discover this boy. Let us go over to Bethlehem's stable, come with the shepherds to see this great sight. Join them, embracing God's great revelation. People in darkness have seen the great light. Let's conclude this way. What does this story mean to us? What is this story in Luke chapter 2? How could we, how could we use it today? How, what, what could we carry away on this Christmas morning to say, okay, there are some handles that I could basically take hold of. Well, first of all, when you are disappointed or even disgusted with pompous governmental leaders, anybody here like that? When you are dis- disappointed or even disgusted with pompous governmental leaders, Remember that God is still in control. He is accomplishing his will. He is fulfilling his purpose. That's one of the carryaways from this story. That the Lord accomplished his wonderful salvation, even working through human government. Number two, don't disdain humble circumstances. Perhaps today you find yourself in those same humble circumstances. You're not thought of as great by by anybody. In fact, you're probably uh, looked, looked down upon, disdained because of your Christianity, because of your stand for the Lord. Don't disdain humble circumstances. God uses impoverished peasants who are treated as outcasts. God can glorify his name through people who are treated with disdain. One of the most interesting historical developments in South America was when the communists began to move in, they tried to get together with Christianity and they called it liberation theology. And they said, this will cause the peasants to rise up and we can all work together and we can, we can overthrow the governments. But when the true gospel began to be known and those same peasants recognized, you mean... I could have gold and silver and precious stones in heaven 
and it was all bought for me by the blood of Jesus Christ, I'll take Jesus rather than communism. I will take Christ over communist any day. God, number three, is still working through humble people the very, that very few people even know about. He delights in using the most humble messengers to spread his heavenly message. That's what the Lord is still doing through us today. And of course, what really this passage is about is those good tidings of great joy. Remember, this is the reason for this season of great joy and good tidings because the angel said, good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. I I just want to ask you again, aren't you glad you're a part of all people? Because he says here, it is for all people. It's interesting that Paul made a connection for us. This is over in Galatians chapter 3. You can see it there in your manuscripts, or if you wish, turn over there to Galatians chapter 3. Paul kind of helps us kind of make the final loop to close up the message this morning. And here's what he said in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham. Now, what what did he say to Abraham? How is it that, that God proclaimed the gospel to Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed, So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. When Paul says here that that the Lord would justify the heathen, you remember recently as Pastor Rod did a wonderful uh, presentation for us on the Reformation, this is what Luther really grappled with. What, What does he mean when he says justify? When he talks about justifying the heathen, what is what's he really driving at? And glory to God across these five, these five centuries, 500 years, one of the things that's been really opened up to us is when the Bible speaks about people being justified, it means that they are declared righteous in God's sight. The Christ child, like the little child in the Hans Christian Andersen story about the emperor's new clothes, the Christ child come to say, he came to say to us, you know you're naked of God's righteousness. Jesus Christ's first words as he began his public ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Christ child came to tell us that, but he also came to justify us. That is, that you and I could be declared righteous in God's sight. Think about what that means. That you and I are declared to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we're clothed that way in God's sight. That's what Paul's driving at here. When he says, justify through the heathen through faith, he preached the gospel to Abraham. The question today is, have you been justified by faith? When we think of the word faith, we often think of the acronym, forsaking all, I trust him, on this Christmas morning, have you said to the Lord, Lord, I am giving you all of me. I, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm naked of any righteousness. I've proven that to myself over and over again. My conscience accuses me of that. And just come to the Lord and embrace him as the Savior who is Christ the Lord. When you come to know the Lord, one of the things that you will come to experience is 
the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God in the highest. And on this Christmas morning, those of you who know the Lord, you're experiencing this. I mean, you, you are in your inner being, though nobody else may even understand it. Others around you, family members may not. In your inner being, you are saying, glory to God in the highest. This is the greatest of all good news. These are good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. The angels, in a surprising fashion, said to the shepherds, fear not. (laughs) Can you imagine again, you're out in the darkness and and the angel comes upon you and he says, don't be afraid. (laughs) Okay, if you say so. Fear not. Why? Why? Because I bring you good tidings of great joy. Don't be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For I bring you news of the greatest delight. To you this day, the one who will save. Now come to the manger and see this great light. That's exactly what the shepherds did. And then went all over the place telling others about the joy they had experienced. Because they had seen the Messiah. We invite you today, embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Recognize that when he lived the righteous life that every one of us should have lived and died the sinner's death that we all deserved by his dying for our sins and being buried and rising again from the dead, he was demonstrating to all of us the good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. We appeal to you today embrace him by faith. Shall we pray together? Lord, we praise you for these good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. I thank you so much this morning on this Christmas day that we can rejoice in this. We can take heart in this. We can be encouraged in this. We can humble ourselves knowing that you alone are God. You alone are Lord. And I pray this day, Father, that you would help every one of us to experience the genuine joy of Christmas. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.